0: Finance and history. The EABH podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history.
1: Follow us on bankinghistory.org.
0: I'd like to welcome you to the uh, second podcast of the uh, European Association for Banking History, we're going to talk today about the history of risk management. Some of you may remember that we did a conference on the subject in Switzerland in Rüschlikon in 2014 and uh, we had quite some eco and some good feedback but since then we haven't really covered it to do that in one of our annual conferences but due to the pandemic uh, we were of course not able to do so we thought we are going to package it in uh, this um, (coughs) podcast today so the podcast today will be um, done uh, with Thorsten Wegner and myself. Uh, quickly, I uh, want to introduce Thorsten. Thorsten was a um, speaker at the Rüschlikon conference 2014. He talked about the quantitative history of risk management at that conference. Thorsten is one of the leaders in the McKinsey risk practice and advises financial and other institutions on risk management modeling risk, uh, enterprise-wide risk management, and things like this. Before that, <coughs> Thorson and I worked together in uh, a Swiss bank. He established the Asset and Liability Management Committee there. Uh, we uh, built together the investment portfolio with a minimal risk profile in order to invest the excess cash that we had on the balance sheet. Uh, Thorson also led the uh, capital allocation model development in the bank that uh, <coughs> allowed us to manage risk uh, out of And, and before that, uh, Thorsen and I actually met not at the Ryschlikon Risk Conference in 2014. So we met way earlier when I was the chief risk officer at Deutsche Bank and he worked as a consultant on various projects for us in uh, risk management. Quickly to myself, so the, I was the chief risk officer of Deutsche Bank from 2006 to 2012. But uh, my brief was uh, much larger than the normal risk management brief. Much of treasury, capital management, uh, I had legal and uh, compliance risk, and a big fraction of uh, operational risk that uh, I had to look after. And that enabled me at an early stage to develop enterprise-wise risk management practices, something that we are going to talk about today, because it's very important that risk management doesn't get lost in, in silos. But before we talk about uh, um, the uh, risk management, the history of risk management, I quickly take the opportunity to summarize what we discussed in Ruslikon so that everybody's on the same on the same uh, <coughs> level of, of know-how. But the uh, the result of the conference was threefold. The first thing was that um, uh, we that risk management became only an independent practice after Bretton Woods collapse. Up to Bretton Woods, the world was a world with fixed exchange rates or more or less fixed exchange rate, with tightly regulated and not moving interest rates, and uh, with regulated with a regulated banking system, which had a uh, relatively little risks, uh, which was not very innovative uh, in any respect. But uh, when you look at bank defaults up to 1973 from 1945, they're relatively few. And the reason was the banking system was so rigid and maybe even so bureaucratic that the banking system couldn't take on much risk. That all changed with um, <coughs> the collapse of Bretton Woods the introduction of uh, uh, floating exchange rates, the, um, the decoupling of the dollar from the gold. And uh, the, one of the first risks that that uh, happened in public or the first was in Germany, which we went bankrupt over currency fluctuations. But since then, we had so many crises uh, that, that it's difficult to, to, to summarize them very quickly. So I may, quickly name a few. One was the saving and loans crisis in the United States in the mid-80s. Then we had the Latin American debt crisis, uh, <coughs> which then triggered the emerging market debt crisis, where basically all developing countries had to reschedule their debt. Then we had the crisis uh, when President Clinton was in charge. Then we had <coughs> the dot-com bubble that was preceded by the Asian currency crisis. Then we had this very big uh, event in 2007-2008, the great financial crisis, which was the biggest upheaval the financial system has seen in uh, 2000, uh, since uh, 1931. And uh, we could really ask ourselves, and that was one of the things we asked in the Khan, did risk management actually fail? So the history of no risk management before 1973, and then it started, that was... One of the topics, the second topic is what was actually the risk management? And how has it developed Bretton Woods? And there we had a couple of speeches covering <coughs> the uh, foreign exchange and the interest rate risk in the banking book, which were the two things which are modeled. Both were um, uh, risks which which have underlying instruments which are relatively liquid. That's the reason VAR models were developed on the VAR models for these two risks are still today relatively precise because you have lots of data points, you have a long history to model, and therefore the the models can be well calibrated. However, and that was then the the, the third thing that we've we've seen in this conference, the academics and the account some in the bank started to use the VAR model to produce uh, uh, PL deviations or, or PNL risk assessment for the entire trading book. So, where we had uh, things like uh, credit matrix at the time, then uh, JP Morgan used it, and then it spread through the entire banking system. The regulator approved it to calculate market risk capital, and it was basically a, a value at risk model for every instrument that an institution intended to, to trade. The problem with this was that these models couldn't be properly gauged because they were gauged with 220 days of previous trading history and 220 days in a benign environment give you benign numbers, and in a crisis things look very different. So the risk scores that were calculated were wrong by the factor 10, 20, 30, sometimes even 50, and that led to the big capital losses. Uh, which uh, required a recapitalization of the bank, which caused so much uh, distrust of the investor community that the big crisis ensued. Uh, basically, nobody trusted banking figures anymore and everybody assumed the banking system. Was <clears throat> out of money and therefore nobody was willing to refinance it and after Lehman, that triggered the biggest shock. And uh, with the exception of... Basically, two banks in the Western world, one was my institution, Deutsche Bank, and the other was JP Morgan, the banking system fell over and needed to be recapitalized uh, <coughs> and uh, refinanced through the central bank. So that is basically the third leg of what we discussed in, in Rüschlikon. Now, having said that, so we don't want to do a, a podcast on uh, the, the past. So We want to do a podcast what has changed since uh, we met uh, seven years ago. And uh, if I may, I'll hand over to Thorsten to do a little bit uh, uh, of what he thinks uh, has changed since 2014, since he's advising companies, banks and uh, other institutions on risk management practice. Thorsten, over to you.
1: Thanks a lot, Hugo. Uh, thanks a lot for the introduction. And also, thanks a lot for reminding us the discussions we had in Richlycon back then. Yes, so what happened in the markets, particularly in risk management for financial institutions, uh, since we met in Rychlikon? Well, when we met in Rychlikon, most of the organizations were still in the process of digesting the consequences of the financial crisis in uh, 28-29, which uh, Hugo was explaining just now. And one of the points that uh, banks are very busy uh, at this point in time was to adjust their organization and governance structures to avoid uh, the shortcomings and or the failures in the risk management uh, procedures and processes uh, during the crisis. Um, and in the mid-2010th, uh, uh, i.e. Uh, around 2014-2015 uh, when we met in, in Ruslikon, banks started actually again to take a step back to see, okay, what uh, can we actually do to uh, improve the productivity of our risk management function now that we have established a very clear delineation of roles and responsibilities. Uh, We have brought all uh, the risk uh, monitoring and risk management activities further away from the front office in separate units. Uh, But we then uh, actually saw that these units were a little far from the front line and required Um, additional um, discussions, explanations uh, from the front office to see what's actually going on. Um, And this uh, then in the mid-20s led to the organizations um, uh, looking into how to um, actually uh, boil the risk organizations uh, back down again into uh, reasonable sizes, uh, operating more cost-efficient by... Um, looking into uh, organizational improvements, um, et cetera. And uh, very recently, we in particular saw that um, more efficiency levers like uh, automation, um, et cetera, are pulled, which on the other hand, also increases a lot of uh, complexity. And uh, we also saw over the last um, seven years, that new risk disciplines um, uh, appeared on the radar. Uh, one of them, uh, for example, is uh, model risk management, as you might recall that um, one of the reasons for the crisis in 2008-2009 was also that a lot of very complex models have been used to calculate um, uh, P&L and, and risk management, and many organizations uh, were not really uh, on top of uh, of their models. So this new risk discipline has been introduced um, by the US regulator um, already in the beginning of the 2010th. But, um, uh, over the last seven years, uh, it became an, a very integral part of uh, what banks um, were doing in terms of risk management. The other uh, big trend besides the, the new risk disciplines uh, that we see over the last seven years is um, also a trend towards uh, simplification. Banks tried to simplify not only the organizational setups again, but also uh, the way models um, and um, uh, um technology is used uh, when um uh, assessing risks and managing risks why this on the first glance sounds a little bit uh, counterintuitive uh, when we uh, also talk at the same time about uh, increase in automation etc this means in particular that uh, for example the approaches that are used for calculating risks have been uh, much more simplified um I give an example and um Um, we have been part of this journey um, for the institution you were mentioning, is that uh, more complex uh, risk models um, to calculate value at risk have been actually replaced by straightforward uh, easy to calculate uh, models. Um, I'm talking in particular about the historic simulation which is now widely used by many organizations. It has the advantage of being uh, conceptually very simple and straightforward. It also comes with uh, some disadvantages but it uh, definitely simplifies the way that uh, banks are looking at uh, quantifying those risks. Um, And um, The other uh, big trend um, I want to mention is, um, uh, again, Hugo, you mentioned this uh, as well, is uh, enterprise-wide risk management. Um, It is very important that uh, the risk management approach is not only um, along different silos and um, different risk types, it's it's, uh, something that goes across the organization as the term enterprise risk management uh, indicates. This means that uh, not only the risk functions, uh, which are um, in the friends of defense uh, language in the second line, but also the front office, the first line um, needs to understand what risks are, which risks um, um, am I able to manage? How do I manage those risks? Uh, which risks should I better leave to someone else? Because this is not my home turf and I just don't understand the market and the risks I'm taking. Um, this goes uh, through governance uh, processes uh, and uh, in the end requires everyone to have a um, risk culture, risk mindset um, up to the board where the, the, the common sense should play an, a crucial role. Uh, in assessing risks. So you should not only trust numbers and figures but uh, in particular be also very sensitive to uh, the common sense.
0: Thorsten, I I heard you saying that uh, that the response to the great great financials was a, a centralization of risk management. Then I remember The FSA requiring the boards of big English banks to be familiar with almost every single risk uh, model and having to a deep understanding how options are priced and all that, which kept the boards very busy, but that that actually was a good risk management because then the board couldn't do their other tasks like strategic risk management, which uh, shall never be neglected because that's where the big risks are coming from. We are going in. What risk does it entail and what do you need in order to mitigate this risk? And these are things the board uh, must, uh, <clears throat> must deal with. And if they are busy with uh, learning how risk management models work in details, they can't do their job. Have you seen that uh, things have uh, moved out of board agendas again and then the boards are now doing more strategic uh, risk management?
1: Yes, that's a good point. Um, And uh, you are referring here in particular to the aspect of the great financial crisis that um, many models didn't really do what they were supposed to do. And uh, the the, the first reaction of regulators in those cases typically uh, is uh, pointing to the board and saying, uh, you and the board need to understand what's going on. So you need to understand each and every model. Um, And uh, this has uh, evolved since then. Um, Banks with uh, actually the, also the support by the Fed, um, uh, established the new role of the model risk management uh, unit. Um, the, which role did the Fed play in this? Well, the Fed was actually the first regulator who issued in 2011 um, a, a guideline of how banks should look at models with a very clear model governance, with a uh, model life cycle, um, validation requirements, and so on. With this, they allowed the banks to delegate the activities uh, that you were mentioning, Hugo. Uh, the boards were now able to ask their model risk management function to take care of the model inventory, to check uh, what the models are supposed to do how are these models in the end used do we have sufficient input Is it to perform regular validations of those models to understand whether the assumptions used for model development are still the same or whether the environment has so significantly changed that the models are not valid anymore so these activities have been <clears throat> delegated um, to uh, specialized functions with this, leaving again room in the boards for uh, taking care of strategic risk management and similar tasks, which cannot that easily um, delegated um, as um, the, the, the model risk management, for example. So I think this is definitely one of the trends uh, I would say in the last uh, seven years, which has really accelerated and um, uh, created uh, a lot of, of leverage for the boards.
0: The, um, sure. as, as 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 you remember, so I was um, the um a finance professor at the University of Chicago in 2013 uh, on the practitioner chair for a year. And um, when you when you start teaching, the faculty asks you to talk about a subject so that they learn what you're going to say. And I was invited to talk about complexity. And the question I was asked by the dean was. <coughs> is complexity in the financial system a systemic risk? And um, I, I, I dealt with the financial crisis uh, from the perspective of complexity and uh, reached a positive conclusion and said, yes. So if most of the banks aren't able to manage the risk, then it's too complex for... or. Ordinary people to handle and uh, some teams are more lucky but uh, we don't design systems for, uh, <clears throat> for the best of the best we design systems for uh, ordinary people because that's uh, what people are so, and uh, it came to my mind um, um, when I gave a speech that uh, in the Apollo program safety was an integrated part of the system design from the very beginning and one way to achieve this was just keep it simple. If we have two solutions to a problem, a complex one or simple one, then they were always asked to go for a simple solution so that the systems didn't become over complex and couldn't be controlled anymore. Um, have you seen, thorson anything that uh, in the Financial that has started to make it less, less complex because in two thousand seven and eight it was indeed very very complex and very few people actually had an overview of what is going on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, that's uh, that's definitely right. And uh, yes. So there there are some uh, aspects where we see that uh, banks are uh, simplifying things. Uh, for example. Um, you, uh, let's take one very specific example. Let's take liquidity risk, right? Uh, this is a um, a subject where you have a lot of regulatory constraints with the ICR, the NSFR. Um, there are some accounting rules, it to adhere to etc But in the end, the treasurer and the CFO are looking at uh, a very, let's say, small and tangible set of figures which they are interested in in order to understand uh, what's actually really going on. Safety first and reducing complexity. This is, for example, the time uh, you can survive with your liquidity buffer without any uh, market access in uh, certain stress scenarios. Um, There are uh, some interest rate and um, FX risk components uh, that you want to look at. So we have a very small set of of KPIs. You will still have uh, some people in the organization who need to know all the underlying details and all the difficult models and all the different um, sensitivities um, to uh, all the different risk factors. Um, But you try to still simplify the way you are articulating uh, those figures into the boardrooms, to enable the boardrooms to understand what's going on. Um, There is uh, also on the regulatory side, um, I would say, a a trend uh, to to simplify things, though we need to also uh, be honest that we are actually starting from a very um, high, in terms of complexity, base. Um, and uh, if we look at the regulation that is still up to be implemented, um, then there will still be some complexity to be added. But I think there is also um, some understanding that um, uh, you you can only um, manage a certain uh, number of uh, KPIs at the same time. By the way, as we are talking about twenty fourteen and I recall that uh, back then. We were also talking about FRTB and uh, the fundamental review of the trading book, the related regulatory regulation changes there. And back then it was four years until implementation. And guess what? Now we have 2021. It's still four years until it gets implemented.
0: So let's see. I think that's uh, very interesting. So one of the efforts that I participated in uh, was uh, making the... Um, the OTC derivative book, the, the swap book, more transparent and better risk management. And I think that's one of the example that uh, we uh, could show as, as big progress. And the, I know not everybody is happy with it, but I, I'm going to touch that later on. But when you think where we were in 2007, in 2007, nobody knew how many, how many swaps were outstanding. Nobody knew who had exposure to whom nobody knew that was collateralized or not nobody knew uh, whether uh, the collapse of one bank could trigger uh, the collapse of the entire system and, and nobody had any all the swaps that was uh, something that the world where the central bank really could not manage because they had not enough transparency now in this world there are uh, basically three big organizations the uh, i think it's the uh, the the uh, uh, CME in uh, Chicago, then the London Clearinghouse and Eurex, uh, which have big CCP exchanges where most of the swaps uh, are, are listed. These swaps all have to be collateralized. So we don't have only inventory, which gives us a detailed uh, understanding of how these uh, swaps behave when rates change. But uh, they're all collateralized. Uh, uh, margin calls have to be met. Uh, people are only uh, allowed to to participate in this business or in in ccps if they have the collateral posting capacities and have to go through a the process then uh, the um, clearing houses have capital so skin in the game and then our uh, default funds and simulation have shown that uh, that um, basically they can survive the default of the two largest counterparties when they default the exact numbers actually they could survive about two and a half of the biggest counterpart this is the third one they would have then to ask the state so I think so all in all transparency is there an inventory is there the sensitivities are clear Who collateral is clear uh, the process how to liquidate the swap book is clear of course some people uh, now moan about the concentration risk because all that is a Uh, centralized in uh, three places in this world, but it's collateralized with cash and government security. I think compared to 2006, uh, 2008, this is enormous progress being made. And uh, I think that's one of the things where we can see that efforts, industry-wide efforts, can make the uh, financial industry much more simpler and easier to understand and to manage. Then they were, uh, um, uh, as before the financial crisis, when that was a spider web that nobody really understood. Is there, Torsten talked a little bit too long to, to better ask you a question again. So, do you see other areas where, where the uh, financial system gets simpler and where uh, industry wide efforts are uh, being made uh, to? Replicate or repeat such successes as we had this with central clearing counterparties? Yeah, I think there's uh, one example that comes immediately to
1: my mind, which is uh, the eyeball replacement. Um, you recall that uh, the, uh, the way that uh, how the LIBOR rates and the eyeball rates in general are fixed is um, somehow um, intransparent and um, caused a lot of scrutiny. Um, rightfully so a couple of years ago Uh, now we are in the process of introducing a new framework of um, fixing uh, rates uh, which is definitely needed uh, in order to quote adequate prices this is also a major shift in the industry that uh, every participant uh, needs to be um, part of uh, to make this a success and um, well uh, given that, um, and this is actually also similar to uh, the example you just mentioned, where there's a lot of infrastructure uh, changes required in the background, you need to have new definitions, you need to adjust all your pricing models, you need to uh, con- uh, change all the the contract, the, the documentation, um, and so on. So it's a, it's a huge effort. However, in the end, you will have a much more transparent way of fixing these rates, uh, and you will make the the whole system much more stable and, and resilient to changes. It will still be a journey, but um, it will definitely um,
0: get us there. Good example, yeah. Um, Thorsten, you talked earlier on about model risk and how, um, how banks made effort to tackle model risk. Can you go a little bit further into the to tell uh, the people listening to this podcast what you actually mean. What, what did happen? What did banks' models are by the f- definition a slice of reality so they can be completely wrong? And uh, we have seen it now in the current pandemic how the first models of infection rates and uh, the number of people getting killed by the virus, how wrong they can be and lead to completely wrong policy decisions. But come back to to the financial industry. How was model risk tackled in banks? What did they do to to, to uh, make sure that uh, they are not getting victim of uh, wrong predictions and the r- rely on benign outcomes when it actually as a matter of fact is severe. That's a very good question.
1: And um, also, this has been a long journey, uh, which uh, typically starts with first uh, agreeing on what do you call a model, what is relevant enough uh, to be called a model, and then you uh, collect uh, every model that exists in a bank. And um, typically, banks these days have uh, uh, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 models. These models are kept in an inventory, and this inventory describes uh, very clearly in which area this model is used, who is the owner of the model, um, who's the user of the model? Uh, what's the uh, what, what's the purpose of the model uh, and the like? Um, and um, uh, then you have a validation function uh, that um, typically reviews these models. And before uh, you validate a model, you need to also, of course, develop the model. And in this step, um, the model risk management uh, describes uh, clear steps that you need to take uh, when you develop a model. For example, it uh, prescribes that you need to very clearly describe the data you're using to calibrate your model um, and uh, which you use as a basis for your model. You also need to look at um, how stable uh, is the input data uh, going forward? Do I have sufficiently well-defined interfaces to source the data? Um, What statistical assumptions um, am I doing can, can I justify these assumptions? Or is this uh, simply an assumption that I'm doing because I learned at university that, that this is uh, what you would, would typically do? Uh, can you really prove that that's the best model choice or are there alternatives? Um, and uh, then you also need to understand uh, how stable the outcomes of your model, are how sensitive uh, is your model to small changes in the input parameter, where are the ranges of validity of your model. You want to definitely avoid that the organization is relying on a model that is uh, just calculating figures, but um, outside the the range of validity uh, of this model. So once uh, the the model developer has finished the development of the model, uh, it's actually handed over to a colleague from a validation team, who then takes an independent view. And there are of course also more efficient ways like agile ways of um, development and validation working together. But the traditional model is that Validation takes the model and actually performs an independent review. It scrutinizes each and every of the assumptions. It tests whether there are other models that would be conceptually more sound than uh, the modeling choice uh, decided for. It performs independent tests to really review and um, double check whether the tests of the development team um, have been um, or can be shared. Uh, in, in terms of the conclusions drawn typically may, may i
0: quickly interrupt so that's yes. an interesting question so this model validation uh, team or group where are they sitting are they sitting in part of the organization or the, so in order to have checks and balances so or organizationally where are they they are uh, sitting in the organization in the
1: risk department typically um you have um financial and non-financial risks, uh, these model validation teams uh, often sit in the non-financial risk areas, except when we talk about capital markets models, then uh, they are often found also closer to the financial risk, i.e. the marketer's and or colleagues. Um, but in general, they are part of the risk
0: function. Okay. Um, something else we talked about, uh, <clears throat> Um, the, um, which uh, was was a real problem uh, in uh, 2007 and 2008 was that risks were so siloed that never anybody understand the, understood the full scope. When you think about it, started uh, with liquidity risk, then in fall 2007 translated into market risk when big hedge funds lost a hell of a lot of money, then started to move in to credit risk when, when Bear Stearns uh, started to run um, out of liquidity and they rescued and then through the summer it got worse uh, in uh, 2008 uh, you had Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae <clears throat> uh, needing to be recapitalized for credit reasons and then uh, came Lehman that's basically also a credit market thing but very few people looked at it in a in a in a holistic way so these were uh, uh, in most eras market risk was somewhere attached to the trading floor uh, with a reporting line somewhere to risk or finance credit risk uh, was an old uh, established which uh, was sometimes re- reporting into finance or to a cro and you had liquidity risk which was more uh, in uh, the finance department, which looked at liquidity risk from a uh, refinance uh, perspective. So to make uh, the refinancing as cheap as possible, but not from the liquidity risk perspective. So the, uh, the all these problems popping up in various parts of the banks not being addressed in one single perspective uh, but a big problem in the financial crisis. Is that something that's getting better?
1: Yes, I would say
0: so, uh, for two reasons, um, or actually
1: in two stages. Uh, stage number one is that these risk types have all been realistically addressed uh, in many organizations, at least, uh, in, uh, under the CIO function. So the chief risk officer had um, all those risk types uh, under him directly reporting to him. Market risk, as you mentioned, counterparty credit risk, credit risk, liquidity risk, um, et etc. Uh, and uh, also by the way, um, valuations adjustments and valuation risks. Uh, these um, uh, very strict uh, arrangements along risk types, uh, then on the other hand led uh, to the disadvantage uh, that the risk functions uh, moved further away from the, from the front line, how the business lines were organized, because the business line, the business unit needs to manage all those risks or less at the, the same time, right? Uh, multiple of those risks at least. And if you then segregate this in the risk function, you run the risk that uh, the, the risk function doesn't really understand what's going on in the, in the front line. And this is uh, what then led to something that we see over the last two to three years, banks are organizing the risk functions more with a view on the business units, so you would have, for example, a treasury risk unit taking care of the risks that are related or that are um, owned by treasury, i.e. the overall exposition uh, the interest rate is in the banking book, but also the liquidity risk and uh, the credit risks taken um, on behalf of the bank and the investment books um, um, for example, in the liquidity buffer. So you you try to uh, arrange the different risks uh, into the same perspective as the first line would have. Similarly, you also have this for uh, business units like uh, retail or commercial banking um, or capital markets banking. So you try to develop already a um, cross-risk silo type of view, so to speak, uh, already in the risk function. And then uh, within the CRO uh, you would then, or the CIO as such, would then aggregate across the different uh, business units. There are also interactions between, between the different business units, like treasury uh, managing the liquidity for the whole organization or um, managing the, the fund transfer pricing of the organization. There are linkages between the different units and they are also reflected then in the on the risk side to make sure that uh, there is an exchange between the different
0: um, uh, risk business units. Um, I think that sounds uh, 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 a lot of progress. Um, does does the board look at uh, risks comprehensively too? So that's one of the areas that you as McKinsey partners probably see all the time. So you have an idea how the board discuss risks. Do they discuss them in a holistic way? So combined with the strategic priorities or how do boards nowadays look at risks um, uh, in in their financial institutions?
1: Yes. Uh, that's exactly how it goes, how um, conversations on the board these days uh, happen. Right? You look at risks uh, alongside your strategy and your strategic objectives. You look at um, return over equity figures, um, including both the returns and revenues on one side, but also the equity and the risk position you're entering into. This is definitely an evolution that has happened over the last um decade, uh, I would say uh, in the beginning of the, of the decade you had a strong focus more on the revenues, right? And um, risks uh, were only represented uh, when the CEO was talking. This uh, I think has changed and um, uh, nowadays we actually have a holistic view. You uh, have uh, in the board discussion uh, discussions about risk and return uh, on one side. And you also have the CEO uh, talking about how can I use the financial resources that I need to maintain more efficiently. For example, let's take the uh, liquidity coverage ratios where all the banks are typically these days, given uh, COVID have actually a very good ratio, but you can still ask, well, can I become better? Can I improve my SCI even further? And with this we release potentially some liquidity buffer that can then be invested uh, much more efficiently and effectively to gain um, uh, also uh, contributions uh, to the profit pool.
0: Yeah, sounds um, yeah, sounds like a lot of progress. One of the things we tried to do, and so that's now a while ago. <clears throat> so we we tried in in Deutsche Bank to have a culture where we said. Um, uh, a no to a transaction is not the best answer. So the the real answer is is under what circumstances, given the portfolio and collateral that we have, would this um, uh, transaction possible? And uh, for very risky um, for risky things within a given limit, sometimes you need to do that. And if you take a, a limited amount of risk, you can justify. Right. Uh, then you have to be compensated accordingly, and sufficient capital has to be put aside so that this uh, uh, risk can actually be. Is that something that is still looked at it like this, or is that something which was rather, let I say, a cul the sac, which wasn't uh, wasn't uh, pursued any further?
1: That is definitely the case uh, today as well. Uh, today. Uh, banks look at metrics like uh, return on equity or income over RAA and uh, similar metrics where they compare the uh, expectations um, on the profitability of a deal to the risks it produces or in in this case uh, to the RAA and equity it requires to hold, which means, uh, yes, you can do the deal, but you need to have at least um, uh, an an income uh, of XYZ on that particular deal. Uh, and then the question is still uh, whether this is uh, something the, the customer is able um, to, to, to pay or whether risk mitigants are brought into the discussion in order to reduce RWA or equity uh, needed. Now that's definitely a trend that, that continued and which is uh, becoming real ingrained into the decision-making processes um, on the business side supported by the risk functions.
0: We are now have one of these um, uh, crises which uh, hit everybody completely unexpected. I think uh, a year ago, we start just started to get into lockdowns and uh, people started to take the virus seriously. And uh, within a very short time, the uh, uh, enormous uh, um, state support programs needed to be uh, established Established and uh, uh, many many people lost their jobs. Uh, Unemployment spiked and uh, many uh, small uh, enterprises had to had to close. Um, GDP dropped by by a high single digit number in almost every uh, uh, country. So larger than any recession seen before. If everything what we've said so far, which sounds like banks make good progress on risk management have learned from the crisis uh, uh, 2007-2008, are they now prepared for uh, a COVID crisis, uh, which hit us uh, out of the blue basically and quite unprepared?
1: That's a very good question. I think that uh, a lot of the risk metrics and risk measures um, have been working fine during the crisis. Um, let's, for example, think about the, uh, the, the capital markets where uh, the the valued risk models um, were predicting changes, significant changes in the risk utilization. Um, they were not as precise, of course, as uh, the, the, the changes happen in the market. Um, due to the, the magnitude of volatility added to the markets. Uh, but in general, um, it helped banks um, quite well to cut their positions at the right point in time. Um, now another example is on the liquidity side. Um, banks were very well prepared. They were prepared for actually the contrary of what happened. They were prepared for um, customers withdrawing money. And in the end, um, for retail customers the opposite was the case and for corporate uh, customers uh, this was much more limited than originally expected. Um, the, I think from that perspective banks were quite well prepared. Uh, what uh, came a little bit as a surprise and um, uh, it's always a surprise in a situation like this is how will the uh, governments uh, and uh, regulators react uh, to those type of situations. That is uh, something that was very uh, hard to predict and difficult difficult to handle. Um, as an example, the, the, the state aid that you see in, in many countries around the globe, is something that uh, helped um, uh, lots of uh, creditors of, of uh, clients, of customers of banks uh, holding loans, um, but this will phase out at some point in time. And the question will then be, what's the impact on the economy, what's the impact on the balance sheets of the banks if the state aid um, finishes to support those firms in in trouble. And uh, when we see a um, wave of defaults, how do the banks then deal with this? Um, What we see so far is that banks are really preparing for this. They are aware that um, uh, there will be something happening uh, most likely in the next uh, um, couple of months. Uh, or quarters. Um, however, banks do have this on their radar and um, uh, think uh, have have had some time to prepare um, uh, their risk management procedures, their their balance sheets, uh, and so on, which many banks also did, which you can already see by looking at the annual reports in uh, 2020.
0: That's uh, indeed a, a bigger risk, so the uh, with interests at record level. So basically, even a zombie company can uh, roll its uh, credit so at very low cost and therefore stay viable, which they wouldn't be able to they to pay had they paid the, the adequate uh, credit spread. And the second thing which I find really difficult to um, uh, anticipated. What does the end of um, the bankruptcy holiday actually mean? So I can't, can't remember numbers, but I saw scary numbers for Germany, where of the I think Germany has about five hundred thousand uh, uh, incorporated companies, and about ten thousand are technically bankrupt, but are now protected through these banking holidays. And mm-hmm. if they are all getting out of this, and uh, that could be a wave, which is difficult uh, to absorb
1: yes uh, this will hit uh, the balance sheet uh, quite hard Um, some banks try to provision for this Uh, some banks are also adjusting how they uh, assess the the risk of those uh, companies which is sometimes difficult to see right if you are um, further away from the clients from the customers with your models and your models aren't able to adjust properly. You do not have the right perspective here. It's extremely important for the banks to stay very close to their customers and their clients and for the relationship managers to be very open and clear in how they see the risks of these firms so that the central functions can hold the right measures
0: to deal with this, so when I, when I look back at the notes I made um, uh, during our, our chat here, uh, then um, I basically um, cautious optimism that uh, the banking system is learning from the crisis, that uh, many lessons are now incorporated in uh, 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 how the financial system works. So, uh, with respect to the complexity of the system, the model risk, uh, the holistic look at risk, uh, the role that the board have to play, and the anticipation of future uh, shocks uh, can now be much better handled with the uh, um, additional liquidity that banks have to maintain and the additional capital they have to maintain, which is much better than uh, what we had uh, before the crisis. Do you think that is an adequate summary of what we discussed the last 45 minutes?
1: I think this is a very, very good summary, yes, uh, and uh, that is also um, how I would see the situation of the banks these days, a much better position than they were in uh, 2007 and 2008.
0: So, we are the European Association for Banking History, not the European Association for Bank's Future. but. Uh, uh, it's too tempting not to ask the question: What do you think will be the trends for the next seven years to come? What what will keep risk managers and bank boards busy? And what do you think will be the the things uh, that uh, uh, help us to manage risks better? We have now seen that. Uh, have not disappeared. So, right now, Green Seals is in the newspaper. Before that, we had the spectacular collapse of Wirecard. So, the, the financial system, as such, is risky and needs to be properly managed. What do you think is, I don't know whether you can answer it, the, if you can't, then uh, that we just close the talk here. But from your perspective, what do you think are the, the issues that are going to keep us busy in the years to come?
1: I think there will be two topics that will keep us in particular busy. Uh, the one uh, will be related to the use of um, IT, uh, particular um, automation, and um, for the digitization, we will see a lot of um, artificial intelligence, machine learning are more widely used to automate processes, um, not only along the uh, value chain in a bank, but also. And in particular, in risk um, itself. Uh, this will be one big topic. And this also comes with uh, separate and own risks um, as well. The second uh, big topic uh, will be also, I think, related to digital and digitization, which is um, the IT security and uh, cybersecurity. Which I think uh, will be um, uh, will, will keep us uh, busy in the industry and more busy in the coming years. And Maybe if I if I may add a third one, uh, this is uh, everything related to to climate and sustainability sustainability related risks. Um, this will lead to changes in how the market function. We will see new markets, um, uh, for example, the carbon markets, the voluntary and the compliant markets. Um, we will see. Uh, changes in in the the infrastructure in general. Uh, What, uh, you you made a very good point uh, with Wirecard as an example. Um, What I'm assuming with this is that we get the basics right Uh, and uh, Wirecard we see that um, the auditors uh, and and, and other uh, basic um, functions of um, uh, checks and balances didn't really work. So um, there will very likely always be cases where um, you actually need to look into the basics and apply a lot of common sense also in the future.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Thorsen. Uh, so I need to switch on, switch off the, the mute button. So Thank you, Torsen, for, uh, for the time you took uh, this afternoon to talk about uh, risk management in this history. Um, We uh, probably should continue that talk, uh, not only in seven years' time, but uh, make it one of our conference subjects uh, a little bit uh, closer uh, today, as soon as we can gather. Again, because the topic as such is interesting. It's also vital for the financial system that the system is safe, can be understood, properly managed, uh, because we can't do without finance. Our economy would run much, much slower if we had to (coughs) rely on a cash economy. In the, uh, function. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non for profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making, and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org. <laughs>